Revelation chapter 18, as we just sort of work our way through this last book of our Bible. You know, the iconic Twin Towers, downtown Manhattan, the World Trade Center, these, these were really a triumph, many have said, of human imagination and just sheer human will. They were completed in 1973, and upon completion, they stood at a whopping 110 stories high, with each one accommodating 50,000 workers, 200,000 daily visitors, and more than 10 million square feet of office space. Just massive buildings that were built. They were the hub of the bustling financial district of New York City, a tourist attraction. They were really a symbol to America's progress and devotion to the future and that kind of thing. But if you were alive, old enough, all of us remember where we were on September 11th, 2001, when those towers were struck by airplanes that had been hijacked by terrorists. I was in the break room at the Home Depot at the West Asheville store. I was an employee for the Home Depot at that particular point in time in college. And uh, I was there watching live television as the second plane struck the second tower. And I knew in an instant that this was not just some freak accident, but this was some type of targeted attack. And I think all of us sort of felt that, and, and in our minds, we can go back to that very day. But those attacks resulted in the deaths of upwards of 3,000 plus people. And you remember images such as these, and just how terrifying that was, and how air traffic was brought to a standstill, and how people who were complete strangers were engaging in open and honest conversation as if the world had literally stopped turning. But the disaster permanently altered the skyline of the city, completely destroying those twin columns of glass and steel that over the decades had come to embody the city life and, and really the, 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 the city of New York itself. And all of us just sort of stared with unbelief on that day and then the days afterward when we just saw first responders and EMTs and firemen and policemen sifting through the rubble that was piled high after those towers had collapsed. What was said to be or thought to be an impossibility proved to be quite possible. Those towers did indeed collapse. Well, Revelation chapter 18 tells us of another collapse and ultimately, it's the collapse of man's city and all that man builds as he tries to unify his efforts against God and without God. And Revelation chapter 18 tells us about the demise of mystery Babylon. Now, I've told you that Babylon is associated with the city of man as it's in rebellion against God. This is a theme that we see really all throughout the pages of the Bible. Uh, the two foremost cities that are mentioned the most in the Bible, Jerusalem, mentioned upwards of 800 times. But the second most mentioned city is Babylon, mentioned around 300 times. And so what began 
on the plains of Shinar, just after the days of Noah and the flood, as man determined to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, where God confuses and confounds man's speech. All of that represents man's attempt to try to unify his world in opposition to God, without God, and ultimately what he builds is destined to crumble, destined to fall, destined to topple over. And so one thing that we've seen in our study of Revelation is that it's saturated with the symbolic and the, uh, the symbol of Babylon or mystery Babylon, this receives more attention really than any other symbol in the book. If we were to go back to chapter 17, mystery Babylon is described as being a, a woman sitting on the back of a scarlet beast. This is the vision that John is given in chapter 17. And his use of graphic language identifies her as a prostitute. And the use of immoral overtones, language, you know, conveying a sense of, of, of uh, pr promiscuous nature, that kind of thing, this points to obvious sin. And so I don't want to be overly graphic, but prostitution, you know prostitution is the sale of sex. It's taking the gift which God intended to be exclusive to a covenant relationship of marriage and exploits it for selfish gain, someone who takes and profanes that which is sacred. And so prostitution then, this is the ultimate example of unfaithful behavior. So this symbol of the woman, Mystery Babylon, this depicts unfaithfulness to God on the part of someone who claims to be in relationship with him. Now, one thing that we've said is that Revelation chapter 17 and 18 represent sort of a parenthesis, a break in the chronological action of the book where John is being given this vision of, of what Babylon, man's city, depicted as that prostitute, what ultimately it represents. And so there's a religious element there's a political element. We'll see tonight from chapter 18 that there's an economic element. As this is the culture and the society of man, man attempting to be God, to be his own boss, to be his own God, to build his own little world in defiance of God. You know, the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we see this vivid illustration of that in chapter 18. Now, it's ironic to me somewhat that the symbol for Western society is that of Lady Liberty. And that goes all the way back to the Roman Republic, where the goddess of the Roman Republic was um, Libertas, which you now see basically depicted every time you see the Statue of Liberty. And so it was this representative idea, this goddess of liberty and that kind of thing. But you know that liberty without personal responsibility, lady liberty, apart from moral responsibility, is a monster. It's a monstrosity. To use the language of Revelation 17 and 18, it's nothing more than a harlot. And so we can boast about our free society all we want to, but here's the thing. Once it's separated from the moral foundation of God's truth, it will fall like a house of cards. 
And that's what's being described here in these chapters in Revelation. So it's not surprising that this chapter, you'll discover it's in the form of a lament, a funeral song that's raised for Babylon as Babylon has come under judgment. And so man's house of cards have collapsed. Here, the world's rulers and the who's who of society, they're singing their sad tune, lamenting the fact that Babylon is no more. And so the language of the chapter is poetic and it's reminiscent of various passages from the Old Testament where the prophets would raise a funeral dirge or a funeral song for certain cities that had come under judgment because of their wickedness. Uh, The city of Tyre being one. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel raised a song of lamentation over Tyre and its judgment. Same thing could be said to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 50. One person has said that this funeral song that we find in Revelation 18, this is a song that's been sung through the ages by those who gave their all to this world only to be sadly disappointed by the results. I don't want to give all that I have in pursuit of the things of this life and this world because as a believer in Jesus, my citizenship is in heaven. I've got something far more solid, something that's lasting. And all that this world has to offer is quickly passing away. So as I've read this chapter this week, I can't help but in my mind keep coming back to the lyrics of that song. I can almost hear the, the sultan of swoon himself, Sinatra, You know, singing, crooning those words, you know, and now the end is near. So I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this. I did it my way. Well, listen, Revelation 18 shows you how that's going to work out for you. (laughs) So this is the anthem of Babylon and all who seek to find their security in Babylon. Now, just a few things to consider. Let's consider first the reasons for Babylon's fall, and we see this in the first eight verses. So you can read with me there. The Scripture says that after this... I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, 
So give her a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So, due to the fact that she's done things her way, payday has now come in full to mystery Babylon. And what was great in man's estimation is now reduced to ruin. And we saw at the end of chapter 17 how God puts it in the heart of the beast and his system, the Antichrist and his followers. God puts it in their heart to destroy whatever this is that Babylon represents, which I I believe it's sort of this this cultural mentality that's going to be true and characteristic of the the world in the last days. The, The blending together of this religious element with the political element and the socioeconomic element. It's a global movement of man's world united against the creator and ultimately it's the evil one who's behind that. So here in chapter 18, John has shown how this, in this vision, another angel's coming, uh, coming down from heaven, having great authority, and notice he says that the earth was made bright with his glory. And, and all, all, honestly, that should be a reminder to us of where the ultimate source of light is to be found. It's interesting to me that the earth is made bright because it's been enshrouded in darkness. And the light that the earth truly needs only comes from heaven. And so having come from the presence of God, the angel is radiating the glory of God and makes this announcement, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Well, what exactly has led to such a catastrophic fall of this city, this system, this empire, if you will? Well, to begin with, her iniquity. That's a major reason why she's fallen. Uh, Verse 2 says that she's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt. In fact, that word haunt translates a word that means cage or prison. Uh, Some translations may even use that word prison there. Uh, The idea is that these words reveal the demonic influence, which ultimately is at work behind man's fallen empire. The great city is now nothing more than a desolate prison for unclean spirits, vultures, carrion, that kind of idea. Imagine what you see when you visit the local landfill or you go by the city garbage dump where you see the vultures, you know, maybe flying. I'll never forget, I think it was in 2006, I flew uh, down to Peru. I was going to a city the city was Iquitos, Peru. It's sort of an isolated city in the heart of the Amazon. I had to go into Lima. had a little bit of a layover in Lima. was traveling by myself, got on the plane, and was meeting a team that was already in Iquitos. And so we made the flight from Lima to Iquitos, but then the, 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 the plane kept circling the city. And after a delay, we, we had to... Uh, fly into another city, which eventually we came back to Lima, and I had two extra days in Lima that I didn't anticipate. You want to know why our flight was averted to another city? Because our plane couldn't land because of the vultures circling the city dump in Iquitos. Somebody had the bright idea of building the airport next to the city landfill. 
okay? I've heard of turbulence, but not buzzards, okay? But the idea here is just, you know, what you see happening, this is completely the opposite of what God has in mind for man's world. God only has the best in mind for creatures made in his image. And when God made man in his image, he placed Adam in a perfect garden environment. Adam enjoyed life in the presence of God. But you see, Adam's sin has brought death, it's brought destruction, and here you see the ugly and painful consequences of where all of that ultimately is going to lead. This is where iniquity always leads. Scott Duvall Uh, wrote about this and said, rather than the honorable garden city that God has envisioned, Babylon has become just the opposite. It's a desolate, demonic wasteland, completely void of the image of God as far as life is concerned. It's an amazing thing. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And it's a sobering reminder of where a society ends up that rejects God's truth and pursues idols. And it's not just true of man's society in general, but it's also true of man's life. You you follow Sinatra's wisdom, you do it your way. You may think you're having fun along the way here and there, but ultimately it's going to lead you to the trash heap. It's not going to lead you to the garden paradise that God has in mind for his creatures. So God is judging Babylon because he cannot allow the influences of a city that's so antagonistic to his character. He can't allow that to contaminate his coming kingdom. What is it that God has in mind? Well, it's the kingdom of Jesus. It's the coming of Jesus that we're going to look at once we get into chapter 19. And it's the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus that's celebrated in chapter 20. And it's the new heavens and the new earth that God has in mind for our future that we'll read about in chapter 21 and chapter 22. So all of this is going to end on a very, very bright note for the people of God. But for those who reject God, for those who insist on going their own way apart from God, well, pay close attention to what's being described here in this 18th chapter. So this is God's judgment on man's rebellious world and rebellious system, and and, and what God is doing is he's ridding the world of its worldliness. So she is judged for her iniquity, and then something else, her influence. The way that she's stewarded her influence, she's come under judgment. Verse three says that the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so it's evident that sin is her leading export. She's intoxicated the world with her sinful, pornographic influence. She's cast an evil, idolatrous spell over the nations, over kings, over merchants. The whole world has crawled into bed with her and have come to embrace her idols. And those idols are associated with immorality and wealth. These have become the new gods, but now those gods have come under judgment. So her influence. And then third, what about her pride or her insolence? Verse four, there's another voice that comes from heaven. John hears it. The voice says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. Her sins are heaped as high as heaven. 
Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way in the message. Uh, get out, my people, as fast as you can. Don't get mixed up in her sins so you don't get caught in her doom. Her sins stink to the high heaven, and God's remembered the evil that she's done. So the idea is that the debt against God has become a mountain, and now the bill has come due. And so another reason for her fall has to do with her indebtedness. Indebtedness. She's racked up this major bill against God. By the way, you know the wages of sin is death. I know there's no such thing as a free pass when it comes to sin and when it comes to disobedience to God, when it comes to disregard for God and his will and his ways. Our sin leads us to incur a debt against God. And that debt, if it's not paid, it just keeps incurring. And we don't have anything to pay that debt, which is why the gospel is such good news. Jesus paid my debt. And ultimately, her inhumanity is something that's seen in the chapter. We didn't read anything, but if you read a little bit further on, you'll notice that she's associated with the blood of martyrs and saints. She traffics in human lives. That's something that's said, uh, I believe it's down in verse number 13. So Babylon, as a system, it's associated with violence and bloodshed, murder and martyrs. Human life is reduced to something cheap, something to be trafficked in. Human souls are sold as animals or commodities to be exploited for selfish purposes. And so Babylon, this is man's world without God. This is man where self is ruling the day. As he takes advantage of his neighbor for selfish gain. Babylon's described in chapter 17 as having been drunk with the blood of the saints, which indicates that she's become known by her vicious persecution of God's people. There's a sense in which that's been true of this world system going all the way back to the beginning as the people of God have been persecuted, as the evil one stirs up hatred and animosity against the truth and against the people of God. But this is especially going to be true of this culture or empire that will be present in the last days that's going to come under judgment. So it's a descriptive way of showing how she's destined to be judged by God because of her mistreatment of her fellow man. And I, again, I can't help but think about it. Human life and the blood of the innocent that's cried out from the ground through more than a generation of abortion practices, and abortion on demand and those kinds of things. Don't think that God turns a blind eye to all of that because he doesn't. But it does incur a debt against God and that debt's gonna have to be paid and that bill is going to come due. And if you don't have Jesus who's paid the bill then what's left but judgment and that's what you see here in this passage of scripture. And so for these reasons and more, mighty Babylon has fallen. Verse 8, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death, mourning, famine, and she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So what happens to her is not some freak accident. This is not something to be explained away. This is, this is divine judgment against the city of man. 
So those are the reasons then for Babylon's fall. Now, notice number two, the reaction. What's the reaction? Well, let's read on. Look at verse 9. The Scripture says that the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, they will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory and all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, that is, human souls. So there's an element of human trafficking here that's characteristic of the city of man too. Now look at verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping, mourning out loud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple, scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. So, sin and iniquity, this is the reason Babylon has come under divine judgment. That's the subject of the first eight verses. But beginning here in verse 9, we're able to see something about the reaction that the world's going to have whenever the system collapses, when Babylon falls. And the main body of the chapter really is comprised of these three lamentations raised over her fall. You've got the kings and rulers who raise their funeral song, verses 9 and 10. You've got the merchants or the businessmen of the world in verses 11 through 17. They raise their song of lamentation. And then you've got all of those connected to industry and commerce, all of those who stand to profit from Babylon's wealth. They lament in verses 17 through 19. And so the world's reaction to Babylon's fall can best be described as shock and dismay. And I think there's a couple of things worth paying attention to here. The first is sudden destruction. Sudden destruction. I can count up at least four times in the chapter that her destruction is said to happen in a single day or in a single hour. And the idea is that the destruction that's coming upon her is, is going to come swift. This is not going to be something gradual, but it's going to be something that is going to seemingly come out of the blue. When things are progressing right along, when the system seems good, all of a sudden, it's gone. 
It's this sudden destruction that takes everybody by surprise. It's the kind that you thought would never happen. You've had something happen to you that was shocking and it just seemed out of the blue and you couldn't believe that it happened. I mean, you're trucking right along fine one minute. Something happens to rock your world the next minute and it sends you into a tailspin. That's kind of the idea here. By the way, that's characteristic of what the Scripture says will happen in the last days. Paul says something similar to this in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety. In other words, while people are at the top of the mountain living the high life, and things are rocking and rolling and going on, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that it would be like the days of Noah, because people were going right along with their lives, marrying and giving in marriage and living the party life, engaging in business deals, until... Noah and his family were safely sealed within the ark and the raindrops began to fall. The same thing's going to happen in the last days. And it's going to be shocking. So what's being described here, John is being shown some type of an economic meltdown, some type of a financial Armageddon of sorts that will one day shock the world. Whether Babylon's destruction comes by attack or whether it's some kind of catastrophe, all of those details aren't specified, but it's obvious that God is the one who's judging her for her wickedness that she's practiced. And those who became intoxicated by her, now notice, notice the text says at least three times that they're standing far off, fearing the same type of torment, no doubt, for themselves, which means that she has no allies to come to her rescue which means that there is no Article 5 that she can invoke, which means that though she has no sympathizers, she has no real friends bringing her any aid. The only thing that can be done for Babylon is to sing a sad, sad tune for the city that has been reduced to ashes in a day. So here you see the system of man and where it's, where it's ultimately headed. Let me ask you a question tonight. What are you placing your hopes in? Are you placing your hopes in, you know, the stock market? Are you placing your hopes ultimately in how your retirement account is doing or not doing? Are you placing your, you know, your hopes in political processes and political leaders and those kinds of things? Folks, we can never place our ultimate hopes on those kinds of things because it's all destined to fail at some point. And so sudden destruction, that leads to the saddened condition of those who had placed all of their hopes in Babylon and its system. Notice the, the ruling class. Notice their reaction when she falls. The kings and the world's elite and those who lived in luxury with her, her downfall deeply affects them. Like dominoes, I can envision world economies beginning to topple, whether it be from New York to London, from Hong Kong to Tokyo, from Beijing to Moscow. The markets of the world have all tanked. 
There's plenty of stuff still to be purchased, but nobody has resources with, with, with which to make those purchases. It's not just an economic downturn. We're not talking about inflation here that's being described. This is a total collapse. This is complete system failure. What is the reaction? Well, notice how many times words like weeping and wailing and crying and mourning are used. I went through the chapter and I could count up at least 10 times that that language is used. Verse 11 says, the merchants of the earth. In other words, the wizards of Wall Street. They're going to weep and they're going to wail for Babylon because no one can buy any of her cargo. That word cargo translates a word that means merchandise. It's describing goods and services which are marketed, purchased, received. And all told, verse 12 and verse 13 mentions 29 specific items of value that you can sort of categorize uh, in, in seven separate categories. You've got precious metals, Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, those kinds of things. That's one category. Then you've got expensive fabrics, fine linen, purple, cloth, silk, scarlet. You've got ornaments and decorations, things like scented woods that's described there, ivory, bronze, iron, marble. You've got aromatic fragrances, mentioned cinnamon, spice, and all things nice. You've got foodstuffs, you've got wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, Oreos, that kind of thing. Animals, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots, means of transportation, vehicles. And then human souls. So basically what you have here described, these are all the things that, that man covets. All the things that man, you know, he spends his life, he burns both ends of the candles, he tramples over his neighbors, even murders and kills to get these kinds of things, lives for these kinds of things. But verse 14, listen to it. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. You labored so much, you worked so hard. And, and what do you have in the end? You have nothing because it's all gone up in a puff of smoke. And that's why verse 15 says that they're going to stand far off weeping and mourning as the harlot who made them all wealthy has suddenly been brought to ruin and they throw dust on their heads out of a sense of anguish. Now, let me ask you this. What if the entire world as you know it were to suddenly collapse I mean, what if the resources that you look to for comfort, security, all of that were to be completely lost forever? The people whom you so affectionately say, they're your world. What if something were to happen? What if the events and the activities and the comforts and the luxuries and all the things that you so long to have were suddenly gone would we have the mentality of Job, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, or would our attitude be more reflective of these merchants of Babylon weeping, lamenting over the fact, why are they lamenting? Because what they've lost, their life was so tied up in those things that it felt like they've died. 
That's why when the stock market crashes, multimillionaire investors can jump out of sky-rise buildings and tragically take their own life when the market tanks because to them that's their life that's their God and their God has died and my God has died that means I have died and life is not worth living anymore I do think that if we were to be honest we probably would discover that we're more attached to the things of Babylon than we care to admit one final thing let me just finish with this quickly the chapter ends with a note of rejoicing Strange as it may sound, rejoicing in Babylon's fall. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on earth. At least five times you've got these words with emphasis, no more, no more, no more. What everyone thought would always be there, sadly, is no more. Aren't you glad as a believer in Jesus that that's not something you ever have to fear? Because life for you... <laughs> is everlasting. Life for you is eternal. Forevermore, this is the life that we've come to share in as those who belong to Jesus. The best that the world has to look forward to, it's no more. But the best that the child of God has to enjoy now and forever is forevermore. Endless life in Jesus. And that's why we need to set our minds on heavenly realities. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Intentionally set your mind on things that are above, not on things here on the earth. Why? Because you died. How have I died? Well, I died when Christ died. The old me's been crucified with Jesus. The new me's been raised to endless life with Jesus. And now my life is hidden with Christ in God. And now, listen to this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that means we've got something to look forward to. Like Abraham, we can be content to simply live our lives in a temporary dwelling, like a tent. You ever thought about that? God took Abraham to the promised land and said, Abraham, look in every direction, every which way you look, this land is yours. I'm giving it to you. 
But it would be Abraham's descendants who would come to possess that land after the conquest of the land in the days of Joshua, which means that Abraham had to take God at his word and live by faith. And all that Abraham had to live with in, in, in those days was just his tent. The only piece of real estate that Abraham and Sarah were given was a burial cave, even though the entire promised land was theirs. You know, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see what's going on in the world around you, and it, it, you get discouraged, and you're tempted to get angry, and you find yourself saying things and maybe having a rotten attitude toward people and toward things. You don't have to live that way. Not if you're a believer in Jesus. Because you realize this is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And Lord, the very best that this world has to offer us is temporal. It's fleeting, it's fading, it's passing away. But Lord, what we have in Jesus is eternal. And thank you for eternal life, Lord. And thank you for the precious promises of God. And Lord, this is our confidence, and so that means we can live confidently, we can be witnesses and salt and light and point people to the hope that we have in Jesus, even while the world around us is crumbling. It's a reminder, Lord, that Babylon is destined to fall, but we're looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God himself, and Jesus is king. And it's his precious name that we pray tonight. And all God's people said together, amen. amen.